This is kind of a unique Sunday uh, for the church around the world. This is Suffering Church Sunday. It's a, it's a Sunday that churches primarily in the West remember churches and Christians in other parts of the world that do not have some of the liberties we enjoy here in the States, certainly, or in Canada, parts of South America and Europe. We'll, we'll pray at the end of the teaching for that, but I just want to introduce the teaching time by saying that. It certainly applies to the text we're in today, but... Uh, you know, as a church, we do support missionaries with Gospel for Asia. These are oftentimes folks who are also in persecuted areas where it costs something to share the message about Jesus Christ. Also, Voice of the Martyrs, uh, we don't get a stack of these handouts, but I hope you guys will take a peek when you can. They also have a monthly publication. <clears throat> I confess sometimes it's a bit depressing, can be depressing, because it lists what Christians are suffering in persecution around the world. And uh, some of it's horrendous, and some of it's long-term and chronic, and some of it's short-term and very brutal. But uh, we support Voice of the Martyrs in part because they're a group, a key group, that supports the suffering church in areas around the world. And while it can be overwhelming to read about what the world and non-Christians are doing to Christians, it's very encouraging, on the other hand, to hear the ways in which Voice of the Martyrs and other agencies are there to help folks who, the families of folks who are in prison and other things along that line. So as a church, we're giving feet to our words, so to speak, in supporting groups who do exactly what we're thinking about or talking about today, which is supporting the suffering church. That is the, the church in parts of the world that has more direct or the classical kinds of persecution we would think of from Bible times and on. So think about that as we go through. This is a short passage again. We're in Revelation chapter 1. We're taking one half of one verse, the second half of verse 9. Let me read that to Revelation 1, all of the verse. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The last week we looked at the first half of this verse. We talked about John being a fellow partaker with Christians then and Christians like us today in tribulation or trouble, persecution. In the kingdom, we're in Christ's kingdom now, but primarily a kingdom that's yet to come. And then the perseverance that's needed because Jesus does not yet rule and reign as he will in the future on the earth. Today we're just looking at the last half of that. John finishes this verse by saying he was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Geographically, if you look at a map of the, uh, the, the Mediterranean and the area around Turkey and then up into the Greece area, lots of islands through that whole part of the Mediterranean. This is one, <clears throat> excuse me, small island. It's straight west and a little south off of modern-day Turkey, about 35 miles off the coast. It's not a very big place. It's about 10 miles long, tall, and 6 miles wide, pretty rocky. <clears throat> this island was used as a quarry, and there's a good chance when John says that he's on the Isle of Patmos that, that he's doing forced labor at a quarry of some sort, uh, mines or a quarry. And it's directly off the part of Turkey where the churches are that he's going to write to in chapters 2 and 3. So it's not very far removed geographically from the area he's been and he'll address in his letters, but it's a world away also, that 35 short miles across the sea to uh, his island prison. 
That's where he's at geographically. Uh, look at the two reasons that he says he's on the island called Patmos. Remember, this is not a, it's not a vacation. It's not a resort. John didn't buy a ticket on a boat to go uh, sunny Patmos. This is an exile. He is imprisoned on this island. And he says he's there for two reasons. In the second half of verse 9, he says he's there because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. These are certainly related to one another, but uh, talking about them separately. The word of God, John is known. Remember, he's an apostle. He was a follower of Jesus. He's a key leader in these churches that he'll address in chapters 2 and 3. And one of the key things that his life was all about was the word of God. That is what we would call the Bible or the scriptures today. Remember, John pens the gospel, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. He's a key author. His life is centered around the word of God. He's known as one who proclaims or teaches God's word, the scriptures. Tied to that, he's also known as one who gives testimony to Jesus. So his life is characterized by the word of God and by proclaiming the gospel. We could say teaching the scriptures probably to the church primarily, that side of it, proclaiming the gospel to those primarily outside the church. This is what he's guilty of. This is what he's known for, proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming the testimony about Jesus Christ. You know, if you're in the United States or if you're in various parts of the world uh, over the times of history, if you say someone's, uh, they believe the scriptures, they teach the scriptures, they tell others about Jesus, this should not sound like a big deal as far as a reason for you to be imprisoned. It is a big reason in other parts of the world today, but in John's circumstances, remember that they, they face uh, opposition on at least two different sides. As Jews, and John was a Jew, as Jews who now believe in a Messiah called Jesus, when they proclaim the gospel to the Jewish communities they go to, once Jesus is rejected as the Messiah, they have opposition from the Jews. They're seen as a Jewish cult. For the Romans, primarily, there's no difference between the, the early Christians and the Jews. They're just seen as a sect of Judaism. The Jews don't want any part of them, though. So the Jews persecute them. So as you read through the book of Acts, you can see the, the priority for Paul is always, if there's a synagogue, if there's a group of Jews, you go and you preach to the Jews first because they were under covenant with God. So they need to get this message first. There's a change. The lease has changed, so to speak. Once they're rejected, or once as many Jews at that time are going to believe as will, Paul then goes to the Gentiles. But inevitably, in fact, if you read in his second missionary journey, the Jews are chasing Paul from town to town to get rid of this guy they consider a cult leader. So they've got opposition from the Jews. John has opposition from the Jews in this area of Turkey. Also, though, these guys are between the hammer and the anvil. You know, they're the, they're the walnut between the, the crackers here. Because also they're opposed by the Romans. The Romans are the military leaders in this area. They've got all the legal authority. And remember that for Rome, Rome has a religion too. And it's besides the pantheon of Roman gods, remember that Caesar is God to the Romans. And they demanded that anyone under their sway bow or worship Caesar as God. And these Christians, these narrow-minded sect out of Judaism, they refused to acknowledge any god but this man that was crucified named Jesus. 
So John's got opposition as this person who is proclaiming the scriptures to the church and proclaiming a message about Jesus, this character that was crucified by the Romans in Palestine, he's got opposition from both fronts. So for him to be known, this was a a very hostile climate still. And if you know history at all, really from about this time on, you enter into terrible times of persecution under the Roman emperors. In fact, preceding Nero precedes probably this time in John's life. But there are at least a couple hundred years where the church, to to be known as a Christian... Uh, literally was to take your life in your hands. So in this oppositional climate, John is known as one who proclaimed the truth of the scriptures and the testimony of Jesus. Now, when I read this, the question I'm asking myself, and I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, if you and I were put on trial today and the charge was Christianity, is there enough evidence to convict you? Is there enough evidence to convict me? John's testimony of himself and the testimony that those around him had of John was he teaches the word of God and he lives it and he proclaims the testimony of Jesus. Those were the charges and he was found guilty. So if you and I are brought up today on these same charges, is there enough evidence for conviction? Now on one hand, we could say of the apostle John, look, he's an apostle, He's a key leader in the church. He wrote these epistles that are part of the Bible. Uh, He's he's this big guy up here, and and I'm not. And and that would be fine because he was a unique person and had a unique ministry that probably none of us ever will. We're certainly not penning the Bible today. So I would grant you some leeway there. But on the other hand, do your family members, do your friends, Do your neighbors, do the people you rub shoulders with today, would they say that they know you're a Christian? If you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, do the folks you work with, you live near, you interact with, etc., do they know you're a Christian? Would they say your life is characterized by a testimony to God's word? Have they heard from you the truth of the scripture, any truth? of the scripture, much less the gospel, which is the other aspect of this. Um, You've got to be in the scripture to be known for the scripture. You've got to be in God's word to be known by others as someone whose life is characterized by God's word. That's the beginning. We can't live what we aren't. We can't obey what we don't know. We can't share with others what we ourselves haven't already participated in. So relative to the charge of the word of God, are you and I... Uh, guilty, so to speak, would your friends, neighbors, Romans countrymen, would they say, we know they're a Christian because of their testimony of the word of God? Sometimes this is as easy. We talk about this at home. You know, it's just saying you can share with people what you happen to read in the Bible. When I was a new Christian, still with a very pagan lifestyle, still didn't know any better, sort of, Uh, I was sharing with the guys I was partying with what I was reading in the Bible. And it was easy. And I didn't know what they thought of me at the time, but I didn't care either. And I still remember great conversations I had as a partying, pagan living type, new believer, talking about God's word with the guys I was still partying with. Because it's where I was at. So I was just sharing with them what I was learning, new things I was learning and being challenged by. All of us can do that. Every day at school, at work, 
neighbors, friends, relatives. This is not hard. If we're being shaped by God's word, and if we're like Psalm 1, if we're meditating on what God has said in the Bible, then sharing that with others should be a natural thing. It should not be hard to do. It should be easy. It should be just the natural outcome, the overflow, if you will, of us spending time in God's word. And then the second part of that is the testimony of Jesus uh, a death, you know, just recently here with Chad's grandfather. You know, all of us, we're here, Shakespeare talks about the stages of life, you know, we're here for a little bit. Scripture says our life on earth is like a vapor. The truth is we're just here for a little bit, a little space of time, and then we're gone. We're gone. We march from time into eternity. And the greatest thing any person can ever hear is a truth about a person and what he did that moves them out of darkness and a future and a present without God and without hope into life and hope and glory and resurrection. You know, this is all upside. So if we in any way, any small way, want to honor Christ, if we in any small way want to, to do right, do the most loving thing we could do for anyone, we would at least tell them how to get out of the fix they're in. Wouldn't you think? This should, this should be a given. That's just the testimony of Jesus, who he is and what he did. And this is what John's life was about. And when they bring him up on charges, they say guilty and they send him into exile. And if we're brought up on charges today, is the evidence there? Are we known as those folks whose lives are, are led, are guided by the word? Are we people of the book as it's referred to in some parts of the world? Are we in God's word? Are we sharing that with others? And are we sharing the hope about the person and the work of Jesus Christ with those around us who don't yet know him? Don't yet know him. This is, this is life and death. This is eternal hope and glory or eternal darkness and death. And this is what we're, this is what we're committed to. This is what John was committed to, and it's what he was found guilty for. It's why he's on the island. It should certainly be true of you and I today. Uh, we don't suffer the, the threat of exile. Uh, this seems to be the biggest thing in most of our lives or minds. What will so-and-so think of me if I say something from the Bible? What will they think of me if I share the gospel? We need to get over that. We need to grow up, I think, a little bit and say we really don't care what someone else thinks. What God thinks is more important, and that person's welfare is more important than whether they think well of me at this time or not. We need to get over that. Second thing along this same line is, imagine that you're the Jews or you're the Romans and you've exiled John. Clearly, you have one hope, and it's to minimize John's effectiveness, his outreach, his ministry. You want to get rid of, of a pebble in your shoe, a troublesome element in your corner of the world. So you ship him off to Patmos. So the question becomes, was exile an effective method of minimizing John's ministry? And on one level, we would say, well, sure, absolutely. Why? Well, physically, he's cut off from the people he has been leading. Physically, he's cut off from the cities that he's been sharing the gospel in. Physically, he's not around there to help them. So one, on one side, yes, this was effective. Exile was effective. It minimized his ministry because it isolated him geographically. But on the other hand, think of what this exile produced. We've got the last book of the Bible written in exile. In this exile, from this island, the book of Revelation is written. 
And those seven churches back on the mainland that John would rather have been with personally, they get letters that give them specific instruction, commendation, warning, information that they may not have received otherwise. So his exile, on the other hand, it doesn't squash what God was doing from John. It actually enlarges it. And think again about this related to the the scriptures themselves. John's oral ministry, whatever his oral ministry is, it it was forgotten. In short order, as the folks who heard him died. And they may have talked about it some, probably did, but his oral ministry had a certain shelf life, and then it was over. But by being in exile, he records these visions and these letters, and they become the last book of the Bible. The capstone of God's 66-book library is written from Patmos during this time. And that Bible, that book in the Bible, along with the other letters, it survives down to this day. Now think, the last 2,000 years, Christians have been reading these same words and being encouraged by them and being warned by them. This all came during John's exile. So in that sense, was this effective in squashing his ministry? Absolutely not. It enlarged it. So we could say what Rome or what the devil or what the world meant as a means of squashing John's ministry actually enlarged it. It didn't hurt it. It helped it. Ask yourself today, where is the Roman Empire? Where's the Roman Empire? You can go visit the Colosseum. It's a ruin. It's a wreck. Italy is not one of the premier countries, financially or otherwise, in the European economy. I think the Roman Empire is yet to to come back prophetically. I think Scripture talks about that. But the Roman Empire is dust in the wind. It's yesterday's, it's a century ago's, it's a millennium ago's news. It's history. John's ministry lives on today just as it did then. Rome, like every other empire before it, it came and it went. But the ministry God gave John during this exile lives on. His ministry outlived the empire that tried to silence him. This is helpful. This is good for me to know. John's not alone in this same experience either. If you want to, you can turn to 2 Timothy 2. But remember we said last week, we quoted a couple times from this epistle, 2 Timothy is Paul's last book. It's his last letter, just before his death. He says a lot of good things in there. talks about finishing the course, fighting the good fight. Listen to what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, at verse 9. He says that for the gospel, he is suffering hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. Just like John, Paul has been tried for being a Christian, espousing strange doctrines, and he's been found guilty. And like a common criminal, he's been put in prison over this. And he says, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Paul says, I'm in prison. I've been jailed. I've been found guilty of propagating doctrine the state doesn't want me to do. So they've imprisoned me. But even in this imprisonment, God's word is not imprisoned. Now, when you think of Paul, remember he's jailed at least three different times. If if we didn't have the letters he wrote from prison, we would be absent Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, 
And also, if he wrote Hebrews, as the early church believed, we would also be absent that epistle. So we would be absent four or five of the books of the New Testament if Paul hadn't been sitting in a prison cell writing to folks he could not otherwise get to. So when you think of of passages, I'm thinking of Ephesians and passages about God ordaining us to salvation and about salvation through God's grace through faith, not our works. Or Paul telling about the mystery of the church or spiritual warfare or family relationships. Same thing in Colossians or about our glorious identification with Christ or Philippians, the kind of things to think about, the kind of things not to think about. Formula for getting rid of worry or fear. Second Timothy, talking about finishing the, the race, fighting the good fight. Uh, Hebrews, uh, enduring persecution, faith. All these epistles and their content were given to the church when Paul was in prison. So just like John, his ministry, God's word, was not shut down or squashed in prison. It was enlarged. It was enlarged. Voice of the Martyrs, the organization that I mentioned earlier that we support as a church, one of their magazines is out on the table now. Voice of the Martyrs is a huge worldwide Christian agency that supports persecuted Christians all over the world. Voice of the Martyrs would not exist unless Pastor Richard Vermbrand had been arrested and imprisoned as a pastor in East Europe uh, 40 or 50 years ago. The only reason it started was because this pastor was in prison for years. And when he was released and came to the West, it was out of his own experience that he began Voice of the Martyrs. And he knew by personal experience that persecuted Christians needed a voice in the West. So they weren't forgotten. So this worldwide ministry today that's affecting thousands and thousands of people, all for good, just a a great blessing to the church in persecuted areas. This came because this one guy was imprisoned. And again, it's the same thing. It's this attempt to squash what God is doing. It's like mercury. Have you guys ever taken mercury out of the old uh, thermometer? You know what happens when you try and squash it? It just... It goes in these little balls all over. That's what this is like. The devil, the world, those who oppose Christ try and squash this thing, and it just sends it out in every direction. It enlarges its effect. This happened with John on Patmos. It happened with Paul. It happened with Voice of the Martyrs. Let me read to you some quotes from a more recent author. Just like John on Patmos, this is an aged individual writing from exile. And these are just a few excerpts from uh, some things he's written. These are some of the quotes. He says, One word of truth outweighs the whole world. Live with a steady superiority over life. Don't be afraid of misfortune and do not yearn after happiness. It is, after all, all the same. The bitter doesn't last forever and the sweet never fills the cup to overflowing. Sounds a little bit like Proverbs to me. He says, our envy of others devours us most of all. Or everything you add to the truth subtracts from the truth. He said of Christianity that it was the only living spiritual force capable of undertaking spiritual healing. And lastly, he said, no one can bar the road to truth and to advance its cause I am prepared to accept even death. Does anybody know who this is? 
I wouldn't have known either. Nope. Nope. No, this is all upside. This, uh, these are words from one of the most important, certainly, and one of the most famous authors of the last 100 years, at least. These words were all penned by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And just a brief biography on this guy. A poor boy, born in 1917, the year of the Bolshevik Revolution. Dad died, I think he committed suicide, actually, some said, in Alexander's youth. His mom, just extreme poverty, but worked hard just to eke by. But this was one bright young lad, and he majored in math and physics. Sean, a math mind. Math and physics, so you know he's smart. Nicole, he's Marlene, he's one of those math minds. As you guys know, math, you've either got it or you don't. And he was a math genius and a physicist. World War II comes along. And he becomes a captain in an artillery group that's battling the Germans on the Western Russian front. He was very successful, two hero awards for his contribution in the war. And then, surprise of surprises, 1945, he's hauled from the front, arrested. His things are torn off his uniform, and he's told that he is a traitor to the country. He has written things derogatory of Joe Stalin to friends in letters, and he is, without any formality, imprisoned for eight years at hard labor. Loses a little weight, as you can imagine, over the next eight years. After eight years of imprisonment and forced labor, probably just like John on Patmos, he's released to internal exile in Kazakhstan, a very, very hot, unfriendly place, not the place he would have chosen to live. After Stalin dies... He is freed unconditionally. And although he was a brilliant mathematician and although he supports himself for years to come as a math teacher at school, his real passion was writing. And he, just, he had this uh, really burning desire not only to write but to tell the truth as he understood it, primarily related to what things were really like in the Soviet Union. His first book was One Day in the Life of Ivan Donosevich. I probably murdered his last name, or Ivan. Uh, Khrushchev himself got this book printed. He'd submit it to the, to the Russian authorities who oversaw printing. You know, you don't go down the corner and have the, the guys publish your book. Everything is, was uh, reviewed by the state. Khrushchev loved this book, so he was behind it. He got it printed. He thought it was an outstanding book. This was at the time when the Soviet Union was turning away from the excesses of Stalinism. They didn't want what Stalin had ended up doing to the country. Conservative estimates that under Stalin, 66 million people were murdered, starved, or killed in one way or another under Joe Stalin, intentionally so. So the Soviet Union was trying to write off that ugly, ugly history. Khrushchev reads this book and loves it. It's published, and it's a runaway bestseller, so to speak, in the Soviet Union. However... As the days roll by and others read it, they say, you know what, this is not such a good book, by the way. It's unnecessarily derogatory of Mother Russia. It's unnecessarily critical. When Khrushchev goes out of power, Solzhenitsyn is no longer popular. He cannot get anything published. He's hounded by the KGB. Anyone who knows him now is hounded by the KGB and is under surveillance because he keeps writing. Keeps writing. But his life is turned upside down. And it's during some of these times that he's writing these quotes. He's ready to give his life 
for the truth. No one can bar the road to the truth. His life certainly was not perfect. If you read biographies, uh, he has feet of clay, as we all do, certainly. But he had this burning passion to write the truth. And he loved Russia. He was ethnically Russian. He did not write to try and destroy anything positive. He wrote with the hope that Russia would return to uh, historical healthy roots, so to speak. He wasn't trying to tear things down, per se. He wanted to see the place and the people he loved built up again. And it was really out of that sense that he wrote. But in 1974, he was arrested again, and he was shipped out of country. He was exiled, just like John, to get rid of him. And it's interesting, up to this point, he was a brilliant guy, no doubt, brilliant writer, but the attempts to, the, the attempts to squash his writing, of course, in the end, just made his name all the more better known. And it made people in the West, as well as the Soviet Union, all the more ready to read his books. So the Soviets' attempt to destroy him, again, same thing, actually ended up enlarging the sphere of his influence. People wanted to read what the dissident was writing from Russia, in country and out. In 1974, he was physically exiled from the Soviet Union. They, just, they thought this was the way to cut, cut losses and get rid of him. He was given the Nobel Prize in 1970 or 71. He wouldn't leave the country to accept it because he was afraid if he left once, they wouldn't let him back in. And he cared more about Russia and Russia's people than he did about himself. So he would rather stay there under adverse circumstances than leave and not be left back in. In fact, he saw his exile. This was a terrible blow to him. We think, hey, he's free. He didn't want to be free in the West. He wanted to be in Russia with his people because that's what, that's what he cared about. That was his passion. But it's interesting. This is almost 30 years after his forcible exile and the Soviet or the government structure that evicted him is itself now extinct. And the exiled has outlived the exilers, just like John. Same thing, same, same effect. His works have outlived his adversaries. In fact, at some significant level, it was Solzhenitsyn's books that helped lead to the downfall of the Soviet Union. His book, The Gulag Archipelago, just laid bare for the Soviet Union. Remember, most Russians didn't know what the government did, and they didn't know about this huge prison system in which if you disagreed with the government, you were going to prison or mental institutions for the rest of your life. They didn't know. Well, this book just it pulled the door open, and it showed Russians, and it showed the world what was really going on. This was one of the key developments in the Soviet Union turning from its past during the, the uh, days of Glasnost uh, in the last 20 years, if, uh, if you're old enough to remember these things. But Solzhenitsyn was key in that. In other words, here's another guy. We're going to squash him. And the effect is, no, you don't squash him. You simply enlarge his ministry. Winding down. John on Patmos and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, they had this burning passion to communicate truth to those around them. And because of that, those around them try and quarantine them. They want to put them in a place in which they'll be marginalized, in which they can't effectively communicate the truth. The outcome in both cases is that the truth grows even bigger. Their ministry grows even wider. 
Oftentimes, you, or I, you and I are in situations that are not of our choosing. Emotionally, career, relationships, etc. You may feel like you're in exile. You may find yourself in situations you absolutely would not ask for. Like Joseph in Egypt in the book of Genesis, sold by his brothers, not in a situation he wants to be. But in the end, he, see, he says, I see that what you meant for evil... God meant for good. So even in your life and mine today, when we find ourselves in situations in which we're exiled or squashed or oppressed or hurting in one way or another, we still need to ask God, God, what do you want to accomplish through the place that I am now? How do you want to use me right where I'm at? Right where I'm at. Lord, what's your purpose? What's your plan in the exile or the difficulty I now find myself in. And in those places, we need to be just like John, just like Paul, just like Solzhenitsyn. We need to still be characterized as those who are, whose lives are centered around the word of God and who are giving the testimony about Jesus. Just touching for a minute on the suffering church, you know, a lot of the times the Christians who are imprisoned don't want out. Many of the pastors in China today have chosen gladly to stay in prison. Some have denied release because of the impact they're having in the prison system they live in, in communicating the gospel and in discipling young Christians in these very hostile climates. There are stories about Christians who have had to tell their families, I'm sorry, I'm not accepting release because God is using me right here. When we think of the persecuted church, one of the things we need to think about is praying for those folks who are in prison, who are internally in prison or exile, that they are encouraged to continue to speak out for Christ. God uses them right there also. But for you or I, there is no downside to anything that happens in our life. Whatever, this world's upside down, we've talked about before. If you want life, you've got to die. If you want to go up, you've got to go down. Because the world is opposite to God's economy. So if you're in a place that feels like death or exile, God God can be absolutely at work right in the middle of that. And no doubt is. And has engineered those times and those places because he's accomplishing something in you and then through you. So there are no down times. There are no defeats in God's economy. He's at work even when we're in exile or down in the weather or in a place that we don't want to be or is not of our choosing. Ask God, what do you have for me? Continue to witness to his word and to the person and work of Jesus. And then especially on a Sunday like today, think about the suffering church. I hope, you know, we pray for our missionaries as a church on Sunday mornings. Pray for those guys at home. They are in much more hostile climates than you and I will see, certainly in the United States. Read the voice of the, mor- of the martyr magazines. Uh, the stories in there are heartbreaking on one hand and very encouraging on the other. But we need to be a part of Christ's church in the other parts of the world and pray for and support those folks. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that all power is yours and that when the world around us tries to squeeze us in, your energy is at work to broaden your ministry. Father, thanks that nothing that's designed to hurt us can ultimately do so because you take evil things, things that are not good in themselves, you turn them around 
for good. Father, in places and times that we feel we're in prisons, we're in destitute areas of our life, help us to call out to you. Help us to meditate in your word, to share that hope with others, to share with others the message that brings hope out of darkness, the person, the work of Jesus. Father, thanks that simply by accepting his work on our behalf, We're forgiven our sins and ushered into your kingdom, both here on earth and in eternity. And Lord, stir us up. Help us to remember the body of Christ in other parts of the world who really are being persecuted as John was, as Paul was, as Solzhenitsyn was, Lord. Help us to remember to pray for those folks. Thanks that we can be actively involved in supporting them financially as a church. We don't want to forget them, Lord. Father, thanks that in the end our great hope lies in you and in your return. That's a hope that no circumstance, no person, no prison, no exile can remove from us. But in these days you give us on the earth, help us to be found faithful. And if we're brought up on charges, Lord, for your word and for the testimony of Jesus, may there be enough evidence to convict us. In Jesus' name, amen.